Jesus has been attracting quite large crowds everywhere he goes. It seems like everyone wants to know his take on the issues of the day. It's almost as if, you know, he's on the campaign trail or something like that. The Pharisees have been hanging around too, trying to keep tabs on him and his band of rough-around-the-edges disciples. Some are curious about what he has to say, curious about this itinerant rabbi, and some are more interested in catching him saying something that would disqualify him in front of the people. You know, something punishable. They are building a case against him, for as we know now, the Pharisees are actively involved in a plot to get rid of Jesus. And two incidents must have been fresh in the minds of those around Jesus, and it came up during conversation one day. These likely were recent events, and people were still grappling with the harsh reality, still mourning the loss. One, a gruesome murder, a gruesome murder and desecration of worshippers in Jerusalem by Pilate, an act of terror on his own citizens. The other, the deaths of 18 when a tower collapsed, a sudden, tragic accident. And we're told that a few of these were Galileans. And since Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee, and most of his 12 disciples were from small fishing towns around the Sea of Galilee, it's entirely plausible that Jesus or his disciples met spent time with, or even healed a number of these people who met their unfortunate and untimely end. And in those days, it was common belief that suffering was the result of the sin of those afflicted. So imagine the panic starting to set in and take hold of these folks left behind who are just trying to figure out what the dead did to deserve such a harsh and violent punishment. It's not like they can just go ask them what they did so they can steer clear, go around what they did. And basically they want to know what not to do so that the same thing does not happen to them. And this belief goes way back. It's nothing new. Humans have throughout history approached suffering in a similar way. And in some cultures, many cultures in fact, they've, they've constructed a system of gods to explain the different phenomenon that humans experience day to day. For example, if there was a bad storm, the god of the sea or thunder or motion was angry. If there was a plentiful harvest... The God of that particular aspect of life was happy. If there were issues with the crops, or if your house blew down, or if your village flooded, or if fire destroyed your grain barn, or the river ran dry, or the Minnesota Wild don't make the playoffs for the first time in six seasons, uh, something was wrong. You did something wrong. And you had to find a way to get right with God. Or get right with that God. 
In this framework then, personal tragedy, community calamity, these were all forms of divine judgment. Simply put, when we sin, God makes bad stuff happen in order to punish us. If, therefore, good things occur in your life, you were blessed. This is a common thread we see throughout human history. And even woven into our Christian theology and history is a similar view of this vengeful, jealous God. A quick look at the Bible, specifically the way the Hebrew scriptures have been misinterpreted, has misled many throughout the centuries to believe that God plays favorites. And you'd better not make this angry God more angry, or else. Because this God is fickle and fragile. And this misguided approach is still pretty common, actually. It fills my Facebook feed. It's touted and promoted by slick and shiny televangelists. And maybe you can even think of times when you've been tempted to employ this kind of thinking, as I have. And I can't help but wonder... Does our view of the relationship between sin and suffering help us respond to those in need, to the need of others, or does it allow us to overlook them? Does it help us move toward the needy or away from those who are hurting? And does it build empathy Or does it construct barriers? I remember August 19th, 2009 very well. Alongside some co-workers from the church I was working with in South Minneapolis, we were huddled together in a dark, damp basement of the Shenandoah office building on 48th and Chicago in South Minneapolis which was the site of our storefront building. We were in a tornado warning. The wind blew, the hail pounded, the dark clouds swirled, and the emergency sirens blared. The sky was the kind of eerie green and faint blue-gray that you can never forget. The usual buzz of the passing cars and commotion created by busy people at that intersection had been replaced, overpowered, by the sound of the howling and restless wind. We were subject to the storm's power on that day. The tornado touched down and made its way towards Central Lutheran Church and the Minneapolis Convention Center downtown where a storm of another kind was brewing. You see, the fifth session of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America's National Convention was set set to begin. 
The main item of the session, consideration. Proposed social statement on human sexuality. The issue being debated was whether some children of God should be automatically disqualified from the pastoral ministry simply because of who they are and who they love. The tornado went right up 35W toward the south end of Minneapolis, Minneapolis, damaging the roof of the Minneapolis Convention Center, scattering tables, chairs, tents, and everything else on the surrounding streets and sidewalks. It also toppled the cross on the steeple at Central Lutheran Church. It was a mess. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage, not just to the steeple, but the surrounding areas. And thankfully, no one was seriously injured or killed. But for many, the timing and the pattern of this unique weather event could not be ignored. It was late in the season, the last one of that season. There were seven confirmed tornadoes on that day. And the funnel followed, it hovered above 35W as it made its way to downtown and then touched down right on that south edge. And there were some who couldn't wait to pronounce that this was God's judgmental hand, that it was on full display. That same day, a notable pastor of a large congregation in downtown Minneapolis had this to say. The tornado in Minneapolis was a gentle but firm warning to the ELCA and to all of us. Turn from the approval of sin. Turn from the promotion of behaviors that lead to destruction. There it is. The tornado and the damage it caused must have been an act of divine judgment. And it's with this same urgent attitude that the people approach Jesus in our gospel reading today. Now Jesus and the disciples could very well be in the midst of grieving the loss of their friends and neighbors, their country people. And when the discussion turns to the assumption that God's judgmental hand had been involved in these horrific events, it's important to note what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not spend any time trying to defend God or clarify which of the 614 some odd laws had been broken to bring down this kind of judgment. But what Jesus does do on this third Sunday of Lent is set us straight. First, Jesus implies life is precious and fragile. Yes, certainly. But equating Tragedy with divine punishment, it's a distraction. 
And also, just because your life seems to be going well, don't mistake that for the blessings of God. And secondly, just as an underperforming fruit tree that has been that has not been left on its own to wither and to be cut down, everything possible is being done to get it to act as it should, to bear fruit. God does not leave people on their own to their own devices, but is making a way, a way to experience real change, meaningful change. Jesus invites us onto common ground this morning. We, we are all headed toward our last day. As we heard on Ash Wednesday, it's from ashes we came Ashes we return from dust to dust. Yes, you and me, everyone with us on Facebook Live, even baby Thielen, who this morning we celebrated his life in the kingdom of God through his baptism, we will all come to an end. I know, we want to live in a world that we understand, right? A world that we can predict, a world we can figure out and use to our advantage. I'd even settle for a world in which we don't have to worry about earthquakes, or fires, or landslides, or floods, or structural failures, or cancer, or evil rulers, or the sound of gunfire in our worship services. But no, not a single one of us is safe, or steady, or secure in this world. And if all of that made you just a little uneasy, Welcome to the club. So what should we do with such a fragile and powerless life? What are our options? Well, there's something else that we should know. Something that changes everything. There's a promise planted in the dirt with us. And it will grow and convert our anxiety into hope, our failure into one more chance, our death into life. It will not be stopped, for it is on the move. Just as we inevitably arrive at the end, so too do we have the promise that God is with us. And God has not given up on us. God will never give up on us. For God has revealed another world. God has made another way. 
Though the old established systems, which do no one any good and lead to the soul's destruction, are still present, they are now the fertile soil from which new purposeful life can spring forth. A life available to all and not just to a select few who feel that they deserve it. A way of living that cannot and will not be controlled or administered. So rather than being tempted to use God's wrath or judgment to keep us away from suffering, are we willing Are we willing, in the face of disasters of various kinds, to follow Jesus in the direction of grace, mercy, and forgiveness? How will you use the time and agency God has given to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God? The fruit that this world is starving Our world is a broken place. There's no question about that. We are broken people. I know you feel it. We all struggle to make sense of it. But guess what? It is Lent, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to do away with the old way, make a new way, absorbing our propensity for division in order to give us something better in return. Now the question is, what are you, child of God, going to do about it?